Well, last weekend, we all know, in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, uh, we witnessed yet another round of evil-doing madness and life-taking darkness as there were two mass shootings in these cities that shocked this nation's conscience once again. In Dayton, there were nine image bearers who were killed, and in El Paso, there were 22 image bearers who were killed. In fact, in El Paso, the, the shooter has made clear his motivation was racism. He directed his vitriol, his anger, his evil against the Hispanics in El Paso. And every believer longs for the day, to use the psalmist language, that the Lord will cut off, Psalm 109, I love that, will cut off every expression of evil. Uh, so we ask with the psalmist, how long before, Lord, before this wicked will be no more? Psalm 34, when violence and death and terror die a thousand deaths, that's our longing. And it's hard not to feel fearful and even vengeful when back-to-school shoppers experience Walmart as a war zone. And so we, we long for that day for perfect shalom, perfect peace to replace chaos when the wolf will lie down with the lamb and when swords will become tools for gardening as the prophets prophesy. And until that day, we, we need to be freed from the thirst for revenge on one end and kind of a passive resignation on the other, knowing that vengeance, retribution is the Lord's and he will repay. That's our hope. And our text is helpful because it gives us today two human examples of those who lived in that hope, who trusted in that hope, and who therefore lived kind of a balanced life between the two poles of, of vigilante revenge on one end and passive indifference and resignation on the other. Texts like what we have here today are in intended to incite us to be still, as we read this morning, and to fret not as we, as we wait patiently for the Lord. I love the Psalms in that regard. They're also intended as means of grace. Texts are means of grace to respond rightly to the biblical charge, repay no one evil for evil, but have regard for good things in the sight of all men. For it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will pay. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him food and drink. For in doing so, you will reap coals of fire on his head. Now, last week, we saw David to respond in an otherwise fashion to that. Remember when he sent word to Nabal. And he asked Nabal for resources as they are living in the wilderness. They are 
being pursued by evil Saul. And Nabal did not respect David's wishes. He, he said, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? And, and so David receives word back that that's Nabal's response. And what does he do? He picks up his sword and he calls his men to pick up swords. He was ready to go vigilante on Nabal. And while those events were still in progress, we read in verse 14. And what we see here in verse 14 is our first witness this servant who comes and he intercedes. Now notice in verse 14. says, But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. And he railed at them. He, he screamed at them, in other words. And so, now, even though the servant's immediate concern is the implication of Nabal's actions. We're going to read here, and, and in the original language, there's 56 words he uses. And 28 of those 56 are used to praise David and his men. Look with me in verse 15. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. Now, that line there, the men were very good to us, those very words were used previously in chapter 19 when it says, verse 4, that David's actions were very good to Saul. And I think the writer is giving us a, an intentional connection. And so the, the servant's use here of parallel language implies that the men under David's command, the 600 men, took on the favorable characteristics of their leader. Remember, 1 Samuel is primarily preparing us for the king. 1 Samuel is an apologetic for the coming king, David. And so the men that are following him, the men who are under his rule, are taking on the very characteristics of their leader. And that's the way it should be. It's the nature of leadership that those under a leader will take on the leader's characteristics for good or for ill. Nowhere is that more seen than in the home. <clears throat> it reminds us the of the vital importance of spiritual leadership in the home. Uh, but it's true in every context, and we see it here. And in this case, it says they did not mistreat the men of Nabal, their, Nabal's servants. And thanks to them, nothing was missing from Nabal's flocks. Indeed, notice verse 16. I love this. They were a wall to us. Now, this is football season, and my son's in the middle of football, and I told, we read this last night as a family. I said, this, this is a picture like a good offensive line, all right? They were a wall to us, David's men. They, they were serving as kind of a, a defense mechanism for Nabal's servants and Nabal's property. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while 
<coughs> we were with them keeping the sheep. Again, the image here is that of a good shepherd. David is the good shepherd who is clearly fit and being made fit to shepherd his people. Verse 17, now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. It seems like at this point that they've had this conversation. Thank you. We'll read later. David's men bring him water. (laughs) And he pours it out. He was such a worthless man that they've had this conversation. This has been an ongoing conversation that the servants have had with Abigail. But notice the matter is urgent for harm is determined against Nabal and his household because of Nabal's actions. They recognize that Nabal does not stand a chance against this warrior in David. And so Abigail at this point wastes no time because she knows what's coming. Uh, And essentially what she does here is she seeks to save her no good husband. And it turns out to save David as well. And so we've seen the first intercessor. And in the rest of this passage, to verse 31, we see Abigail's intercession. It's beautiful and glorious. Verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seas of marched, parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I have come after you. Before I, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. The courage that this would have required. And, and so what we're going to see here is just as Jonathan strengthened David's hand in the Lord, Abigail is going to do the same. Now David, verse 21, had said, Surely, in vain, Have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness? It appears that she's overhearing this conversation. So that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also. If by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Again, we've been looking at the providence of God in 1 Samuel. And Abigail rides up. He does not see her. And he is, she is overhearing this conversation. And what we have here 
is perhaps the most bitter declaration in the scriptures from David himself. It's a toxic speech. And in this toxic speech, he says three things. I want you to note them. First of all, he says, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed. The second thing he says is, he's returned me evil for good. What I was doing was good, and he returned my good for evil. And then thirdly, I'm going to kill them all. That's his response. David is in vigilante mode. Now, there's some real issues here, and I think that this is important to camp for a moment. Because we know as believers, the only rightful motivation for any act, any action... Our act of service is the glory of God, right? It's the only right motivation. Uh, Colossians 3, verse 23, we are to do everything as unto the Lord. First, Chronicle, or First Corinthians 10, verse 31, we are to, to do all things for the glory of God. And so that is the only right motivation. And if that is your motivation... 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58 says, Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Now, David just said, I did these things for him, and it was all in vain. What does that tell you? Well, if your motivation is not the glory of God. No matter how noble the act is, it's sin. Conversely, if your motivation is the glory of God, even if that act does not bear the fruit that you long for and desire, it's never in vain. And that's important for us to remember. In other words, why we do what we do is as important as what we do. So notice here, he said, he has returned me evil for good. Well, David just reflected the fact that what he did was actually not good. He had cared for the man's sheep. He, and goats, and he had protected the servants, but it's clear that David's motivations were self-serving. It's what Augustine calls splendid vices. Splendid vices are actions that we commit that are splendid because they benefit the city of man, but they are vices nonetheless because they're not motivated by the highest of motivations the glory of God, and for the city of God. And so David has confused his actions for good, and it's revealed in the fact that when this man does not respond to him the way he wants him to respond, David goes vigilante. And the Lord is always exposing our less than noble motivations, isn't he? He'll put us in situations where we, we, we do a kind act for someone, a noble act for someone, 
And if our motivations are off, it may be revealed in the fact that this person does not respond the way we want them to respond. They don't acknowledge the act. And we kind of get vindictive in our spirit. And, and so this is a very important point for us. That is clear with David. His motivation is off. Again, God is preparing him to be king. And so the Lord is always at work exposing false motivations. God is at work removing the dross in David's life, just like he is in our lives. So everything that happens in our lives is by providence. And when we are believers, we're under the discipline of God. Now, discipline is not necessarily always a negative thing. You're under the discipline of God right now as you hear the preaching of the word. When we read our Bibles in the morning and have our quiet times, God is disciplining his, his children. Discipline is a positive thing as well. But we're always under the discipline of God. He is conforming us into his son's image. And so if there are motivations, if there are issues of the heart that need to be exposed, he will make sure you are placed in circumstances and around people to expose them. Because you can't repent over things that you don't know about. All right? And so, and, and you're not going to mourn over those things if you don't know about them. So the Lord exposes them through circumstances and through, and through people. And when he exposes them, God's people respond by mourning over them and repenting over them. But it's clear that David's motivation is off. Now, notice in verse 23, what we're going to see here is a model for how believers should seek to turn a fellow believer from anger. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. Now, it was her husband's pride that had provoked David's anger. Pride always provokes anger. Pride is one of the ugliest things that we can display. And it's now her humility that's going to disarm his anger. We'll see more of that next week. And so that's what humility generally does. And this is a very important point when you're addressing a person who's angry. That works in marriage. That works in parenting. That works in every relationship. Humility disarms. Pride provokes. And God gives grace to the humble. The second thing we see here is that Abigail is going to confess her sin. This is remarkable. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. We read this last night. 
I said, Nabal is his name, and Heather said, and folly is his game. That's the message. But I am your servant, but I, I your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, what we see here is that without excusing, excusing Nabal's actions, he, she acknowledges his foolishness, she nevertheless accepts the blame as well. And it's hard to be certain what she means here. Maybe she recognized she should have been more careful in protecting her husband from himself. Or we see in verse 25 that she seems to acknowledge some kind of negligence when this, she says... I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. But now she is making amends, and the Lord is using it to restrain David. Verse 26, Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you, she is... She's uh, professing that. She's confessing that up front. She is assuming he's going to be restrained. What, why is she assuming that? Because she knows he's a man of God. She knows that men and women of God, when they're confronted with truth, will respond appropriately and accordingly. So she is... She is predicting that. She's prophesying that ahead of time. And we're going to see that word restrained four times in this chapter. This is the first time. Because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And the Lord's restraining mercy here is going to come through the instrumental means of Abigail, who warns David not to respond to Nabal in turn. And then she adds, notice verse 27. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Now there's a lot to consider here, and we're going to consider it. But let's address what's most obvious here. The thing about Abigail's character that we find so attractive and so beautiful is that Abigail is a peacemaker. Later, centuries later, Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, women, don't be offended that you shall be called sons of God. The men are called the bride of Christ. Just... Bear with that metaphor. It means heir. All right? To be a son of God is to be an heir. All right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. 
Now, Jesus is not saying there how to become a son of God. So you become a peacemaker and then God makes you a son of God. No, salvation is all of grace. Salvation is by works, but not our works. The works of our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation for us is all of grace. Rather, Jesus is saying that sons of God are in fact peacemakers. That's who they are. Peacemakers will be recognized in the judgment as sons of God. And Jesus says that those who are sons of God have taken on and are taking on the character of their Father, their Heavenly Father. The Heavenly Father who is described in Romans 16.20 as the God of peace. In fact, heaven is described as a world of peace in Luke 19, verse 38. Only peacemakers would even enjoy heaven. In 2 Corinthians 5, 19, God is a peacemaking God. That's who He is. And so the whole history of redemption, climaxing in the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, is God's strategy... To bring peace between rebels and himself. And then between men and neighbor. Humankind and his neighbor. And God's children have the character of their father. What he loves, they love. What he pursues, they pursue. Blessed are the the peacemakers. You can know his children by their willingness to make sacrifices for peace, just as he did in his son. Peacemakers seek to build bridges to people. They don't want animosity, which is a mark of the old age, the age under judgment. They do not want animosity to rule. That's why a Christian marriage is made up of two peacemakers. That's why a church, a true church, is made up of peacemakers. And a person who is not characterized by peacemaking is not a son of God. What's beautiful about Abigail, she was a peacemaker. Of course, peacemakers are not oblivious. They don't bury their head in the sand. Peacemakers don't compromise truth. If you compromise truth for the sake of peace, that's not real peace. Abigail well recognized that by withholding due payment for services that her foolish husband had broken the law. Leviticus 19.13, Deuteronomy 24, verse 15. It was res- the people of God were responsible to pay appropriately for services rendered to them. And David and his men had offered services to protect his servants, Nabal's servants, and his property and flock. 
And Nabal had wronged David. Nevertheless, the law also says that violation of that law, the, you could say the vengeance, the justice for violation of that law belonged to the Lord alone. Leviticus 19.18. And so Abigail, a peacemaker, is not oblivious to the sins that have been committed. And yet she recognizes in this particular case, vengeance belongs to the Lord. And so to encourage David to choose to forgive and to choose the path of peace, she reminds David of his destiny. It's it's remarkable. David should act nobly because God has a noble future for him. However, the Lord, notice, has reserved Uh, that destiny only for those who fights the Lord's battles. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. She reminds him of who he is and his calling. Again, fighting the battles of the Lord is not what makes him a child of God. It's the evidence that he's a child of God. Incidentally, when we lose sight of our responsibility in fighting the battles of the Lord, of course, we're fighting from a posture of victory because Jesus has fought and won the definitive battle. When we lose sight of the Great Commission, when a church loses sight of the Great Commission or people within a church, that's when, that's when we turn on ourselves. All right? And so she is reminding him of who he is his calling and his responsibility. And and what's remarkable here is that Abigail speaks as though she already knew the promises that God would make to David in 2 Samuel 7, which is not going to come for some time. In fact, this is the first time that we see the, the, the phrase, a sure house, in the narrative. In Scripture, he says, she says, the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. This is the first, you can mark this down, the first clear allusion in the Bible concerning the dynasty of David. This very term will be used in the covenant made with David in 2 Samuel verse 16. She, this is a prophecy. But somehow she knew something about this man. And in a very real sense, Abigail is preaching the gospel to David. Remember, the gospel didn't show up in John 3, 16 for the first time. The gospel began, the gospel pronouncement began in Genesis 3, 15, where the seed of the woman would come and crush the seed of the serpent, and you, you can trace that seed all the way through Seth and Noah and Shem, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and surprisingly Judah, all the way to this man, David. She's preaching the gospel to him, the gospel of the kingdom, God's kingdom, God's rule, expressed through his Davidic king, which Abigail believed was sufficient motivation for David to extend forgiveness to her vile husband. And that is sufficient motivation for us as well. 
For instance, Paul does the very thing in Ephesians 4. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. Abigail's doing the very thing. She's preaching the gospel to David to disarm him, to rid him of his bitterness. And because that gospel hope is sure, notice in verse 29. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. She is saying, you have been appointed to be king, and that calling is foolproof. You are immortal until God is done with you. And the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Now, this is brilliant. When was the last time we read about a sling? It's when David was used by the Lord, his God, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, is the name he uses there, is used by God to crush the head of the enemy of God, Goliath, who was dressed in scale-like armor, who was dressed like a serpent. And his head was crushed by this sling. And Abigail is saying, the Lord prevailed then, through you, and he's going to prevail now. And so now, in verses 30 to 31, Abigail closes with a practical and a personal appeal. And I love this. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you. By the way, God is good. And our, one of our biggest problems is failing to believe that. Remember, David has already come to the terms with the fact that God is for me. He, reads, he writes that in Psalms, Psalm 56. God is good. The reason we get anxious, the reason we get discouraged and distraught is because we don't fundamentally believe that. I love this language. Don't overlook it. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or from my Lord working salvation himself. When the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Practically, Abigail encourages David to respond in the present in a way that will not backload the future with regret. That's so important, isn't it? To respond in the present that will not backload the future with regret. She says, if you go vigilante on Nabal, you're going to have deep-seated regret. It will bind your conscience. 
And notice how she describes the way of the vigilante. She says, working salvation himself. Look verse 31. For having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. That is the vigilante. And we're all, by nature, vigilantes. We may not pick a sword up like David, but when we feel like we have to vindicate ourselves, when we've been offended or disrespected, that's the way of the vigilante. And Abigail, inspired by the Spirit, says, that is a person who is working salvation for himself or herself. It's, it's sobering to think about. And note how, as well, her personal appeal, how beautiful and glorious her personal appeal here is. She says, when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Remember me. And I think this points us to another day. When another person will make a similar appeal to another anointed Davidic king. That day occurred on Good Friday, 2,000 years ago. When a criminal on the cross looks to Jesus. Now, by the way, David was from operating from a, a posture of power. Jesus is operating at this point from a posture of death. He's on a cross, and it, ironically, on the cross is inscribed the words, the king of the Jews. And this man looks at him and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That criminal is confessing that Jesus' death on the cross is not the final word. That this Messiah on the cross is going to come into his kingdom. He's confessing the resurrection. But Abigail's plea here is, is more than just an example of a sinner appealing to Jesus. It's that. It's also, her plea is more than an example of a peacemaker seeking to make reconciliation. It's that as well. She's also a picture, a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus himself, the great and ultimate king who has fought the ultimate battle of the Lord by defeating evil on the cross and who will one day eradicate evil in his return in response to our cry, to our question, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Consider, Abigail provided an offering on Nabal's behalf. She brought all the resources that David had asked for that Nabal refused, but she did it on behalf of Nabal. Likewise, Jesus provided an offering on our behalf. He offered up himself as a, as a fragrant offering 
to God. Ephesians 5, verse 2. Consider Abigail sought to bear Nabal's guilt. Verse 24, his iniquity. Jesus actually bears the guilt of sinners. Isaiah 53, and he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 11, David accepted Abigail as an intercessor. We'll see that next week. Verse 32, and God the Father accepts our Lord Jesus Christ, our mediator, and his intercession for us. Hebrews 7, verse 25, he ever lives to make intercession for us. As we'll see next week, Abigail also turned away David's wrath. Verse 34, and Jesus turns away God's wrath. Romans 5, verse 9, we shall be saved from God's wrath through him. Finally, Abigail, as we'll see next week, established peace between David and Nabal. At least a pseudo-peace, a parody. Without Abigail, judgment falls on Nabal immediately. Like Jesus established peace with us and God. Romans 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And importantly for us, as we close, the cross is the great reminder that God will judge evil. That God has judged evil, and he will judge it consummately in the second stage of Christ's work. His return. He will judge it. Therefore, we do not have to play the judge. If someone has wronged you, trust me, they're not getting away with it. So you can lay down your sword. You can lay it down. You can stop trying to save yourself, as Abigail said of David. The cross is the great event that demonstrates all evil will be judged. But the resurrection is also a reminder that a glorious plan is in place whereby chaos will be replaced with shalom. And the answer to our question, how long, will be no more. When Christ was raised from the grave, we have the first event of the new creation. The mortal was swallowed up by the immortal. The imperishable swallowed up the perishable. The inglorious was swallowed up by glorious. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the template of the new creation. And that resurrection points us to the day when every nook and cranny of this world will be filled with the shalom of God.
And that is the believer's hope. When we hear of the chaos that is reigning in our midst. And if you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that can be your hope as well. But you have to humble yourself. You have to confess that you're a sinner. You don't just make mistakes. You're a sinner. And your sin is fundamentally against a holy and righteous God. And that the wages of sin is death. And you deserve that penalty. You deserve death because of your sin. But yet, by the Spirit of Christ bringing illumination to your spiritual eyes, you now see that God has made provision for your sin in His Son, Jesus Christ. And then if you will repent of your sins and confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God poured out His his wrath on Him in your place and raised Him from the grave so that you might have forgiveness. The Bible says your sins will be forgiven. And if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is your hope if you will trust in him. Let's pray.